This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Uh, today, I'm talking to Christina Thompson about a book that she's written called Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia, with a further slight uh, or smaller uh, subtitle, The Quest to Understand Who First Settled the Islands of the Remote Pacific, Where They Came From, How They Got There, and How We Know, um, which is a pretty big subject. How are you, Christina? I'm fine, thanks. <laughs> well, I really, I, I will say, I have to tell you, I love this book. I think that it, it's, you know, it's, it is such a big subject. You know, when, when you think about the size and scope of Polynesia, which you point out for those of us who don't have a good mental image of it, uh, is this triangle. Um, that has Hawaii at the far north, New Zealand in the southwest, and Easter Island in the southeast uh, in the Pacific Ocean, uh, defining a massive territory um, across which settled these people we call Polynesians. Um, and I, you opened the book, I think, in a really personal way, which I really I enjoyed and I think is important, uh, talking about your husband. So maybe you could kind of give us the background of, of where that all comes about. Right. So I, um, this is not my first book about Polynesia, and it is not the first time I've been thinking about it. I've been writing about the Pacific generally, but specifically about the Polynesian parts of the Pacific for a long time now. And part of the reason for that is that my husband is from New Zealand and he is himself Polynesian. He's Maori. And um, so I have had some some context and exposure to, you know, his life and family and so forth. And I've been interested in the history of that part of the world um, for a long time. So so I start the book with an, a, a story about how uh, we took a trip when I was doing research for the book across the Pacific, we even took the kids, which was, you know, challenging. And, um, we went all the way across and then all the way back and stopped at a whole lot of places so that I could sort of see some of the places that I was going to be writing about. So that was the, that's the kind of, and there's a little story there about him and, and about us in that trip, which is just the opener to the book. Right. And in that place, you're in Hawaii, uh, once known as the Sandwich Islands, which is another long story about uh, European uh, namings of places. But um, it's what I was really captivated by uh, in that opener was this sense of oneness that the people of Polynesia, this gigantic space of lay, you know, of, of, of territory, feel for one another that you describe your husband being called brother uh, by a Hawaiian who recognizes him essentially um, as being one of one of his, one of his people. And that this happens all over Polynesia from Samoa, uh, Tahiti, all the places you could go. Um, and I think that's a really, that's a powerful setting, I think, for understanding um, the scope of what you're trying to accomplish, which is to understand how did all these people in small boats, no doubt, canoes, traverse such vast distances. And really, that's what this book is about. It's about the peopling of the oceanic Oceania, as we call it, uh, the Pacific Ocean. Right. So the the um, thing about... Oh, sorry, my phone's... Um, the thing about... Uh, 
they're being all recognizing one another is that this diaspora, it's really a diaspora um, in a sense, is not that old. It's uh, the people, the, the precursors of what people we know as Polynesians, or we, we think of, we call them Austronesians, that's just a sort of a linguistic term. Um, they move down from, they move out of the edges of Asia and the island areas, the sort of island Southeast Asia, come, you know, maybe 3,000 years ago or some, a little bit longer and head out into the, the open Pacific. And they're really the ancestors. My, they're my husband's ancestors in a sense, you know, they're the ancestors of the Polynesian people. Um, but that isn't, but the last sort of splits in that family are only about 800, 900 years old. So these people have not been separated from one another very long in, in sort of human history terms. They, it is a long time, of course, but it's not like tens of thousands of years or even five or 6,000 years. It's only comparatively recently. So they're, they're quite, linguistically, they're all still pretty close. Genetically, they're all still pretty close. Uh, culturally, they're all still pretty close. So I think that's what enables this this like pretty much instantaneous recognition. And with my husband, because just kind of because of I guess I, because of his I don't know why, but he happens he's 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 he can be easily mistaken for a local. So when we're in Tahiti, people often think he's Tahitian. When we're in Tonga, people think he's Tongan, you know. So, um, so, so he really does seem like he's in amongst his kin when he's in these islands. But the islands are, of course, you know, as you pointed out, they are, you know, thousands of miles apart with nothing but blue water between them. So that is kind of an amazing thing. <laughs> right. And, of course, that takes us back to one of the, you know, the key questions that, um, Europeans had when they got to the Pacific, they couldn't understand where all these people came from, who they were. They were trying to figure it out. And your book really starts at that kind of that moment or one of those moments of early contact. And you take us through to the present. And essentially the through line is this effort to try to understand the history uh, of the people, how, you know, the geographic history, the technological history, how did they get there, the traveling, the diaspora, as you, as you point out. Um, and there are all these different theories of how it happened, which you document, which you know, I thought pretty interesting. Uh, you know, when I was long ago, an undergraduate, I studied anthropology and linguistics, and I was always interested in the notion that you could use language and culture to um, essentially deduce, to some extent, um, history. Um, you know, this absolutely, and, mm. and and it's an imperfect, you know, it's as you talk about in the book, it's something that is really imperfect and difficult um, on its own. But what you have as time goes forward in the telling of your story, different technologies, new ideas, and new opportunities to do um, uh, work that helps figure out what these stories or, or what the actual story that you're trying to uncover. And I thought it was really interesting to um, show all of the different efforts, you know, the different, all these pieces working together. Um, you're weaving a, a story together about um, trying to, that, that uncovers some fairly meaningful evidence, I think. Right. And the evidence changes over time. That's really, that, that was the thing that was, I think not immediately obvious to me at the very beginning of the book, but became obvious as I worked on it, was that the the evidence is of a different character and sort of 
is kind of lodged in different disciplines in a way as time moves forward, partly because of technology, partly because of, for example, the invention of radiocarbon dating, you know, or the discovery of radiocarbon, the method for radiocarbon dating. And that is, you know, that's a real stake in the ground. I mean, that really changes, changes the game for archaeologists in the mid 20th century. But there are other moments like that, like, you know, first Europeans arrive in the Pacific and they sort of observe what they can, but they don't have much in the way of communication. They have a little bit of communication, you know, language, but they don't have that much. And then within, you know, 50, 60 years, or maybe even less than that, 30 years, 40 years, the, they, there are some people who can really talk back and forth across this, these cultural divides. So you start to get a whole other window into what's going on because you can ask people and say, you know, where did you come from? And what do you think the story is? And so that's another piece. So yeah, it's it's it, to me it was just endlessly fascinating how there were these different approaches using different sort of methods, but that those methods kept changing century by century, or almost in some cases decade by decade. Right, but also yeah. I like the way you um, we the weaving together of that so that the you know you can you have in the early stages the recording of. Polynesian uh, stories, mythologies, um, creation stories, um, events told. You know, it's an oral culture, so um, they tell their you know their ancestor stories. Um, uh, tremendous feat of memory, and as you point out, there's a kind of limit to how much, how far back can people go, even in the storytelling. Uh, uh, to, you know, how many hundreds of years, how many different generations back can you go? But I thought it was really interesting that you tie that back in later on, because the some it turns out that the the original genealogical interpretation of history. Uh, is actually backed up by some of the later uh, uh, scientific evidence. Yeah, that's kind of an interest. That's a really kind of a neat little point there. That the there are these estimates uh, from the 19th century of how long these people had been in certain places based on the genealogies that were reported. So if you calculate a generation at so many years, and there was a lot of dispute about whether it should be 20 or 25 or 30 or whatever number of years, that you can sort of figure back how many hundreds or even possibly thousands of years. Um, people have been, you know, did these genealogies go back? I mean, the genealogical method of kind of dating is really uh, absolute, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, it's certainly obsolete, but but it's also not like absolutely fixed. And so there were a lot of, there was a lot of doubt about whether or not it was a good method, whether it could really produce any, you know, truly kind of reliable dating results. And then it just sort of turned out that the, you know, as the radiocarbon dates got more and more sophisticated, that they they came closer and closer to some of these uh, these these genealogical dates, which was just a sort of sweet, you know, confirmation that these were both two very different approaches, and that they were coming sort of asymptotically approaching one another. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know, it is a, a a kind of interesting to think about the. Um, time frame that you're talking about so that it's a couple of thousand years basically of uh uh population movement across this space mm-hmm. um, and there's a sort of poetic moment i think that's really powerful for me trying to imagine as you point out like what was it like when you landed in a place like uh, new zealand or even hawaii and there were no other people there 
that you come to this place. You're the first person there. We, you know, we talk, Europeans always act like they're the first people who ever arrived anywhere. And of course, forget that there were indigenous people there before them. But actually, when those, at a certain point, there was an indigenous person who arrived there and really was the first person. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the really amazing things about this story is that these are the first people to reach these places. And you think of a big place like New Zealand. I mean, New Zealand is a big habitable, you know, cluster of islands. And there was no human presence in New Zealand until maybe 800 years ago. I mean, it's just kind of astonishing, really. I mean, compared to, for example, by comparison, New Australia, just over the Tasman Sea, not that far away, certainly as the crow flies, you know, um, has been inhabited maybe for 60,000 years, right. 65,000 years. Right. So, so, you know, these, these, the, the human history of, these, of this region is, is very complicated and has all these different, you know, different waves of migration and different time frames in it. But, you know, I'm really focused mainly on the Polynesian one, but, but it is absolutely true that when these people, you know, when these people got to these islands, they were the first people there. Nobody else had been able to crack it, really. So, right. So they, they, and this is a big part of the book, I think, that's really um, uh, important to think. This kind of gives you this entry point into another way of understanding uh, navigation and uh, travel. And I, I thought that was something else that I found really, um, it made me think a lot. I'm still thinking about it, trying to understand it. It's part of it is you talk about this. Um, early guy whose name I can't remember, who um, Cook came into contact with and then traveled with him, the navigator, I think Taino. Right, Tupaya. Tupaya. So, Tupaya, yeah. So you, and you talked about how his map for, of the, of his, of his map as he wrote it down for the Europe, the English um, was really confusing because he kind of operated in a different conceptual framework uh, of, understanding of his surroundings uh, than the Europeans did. And this sort of relates later to when there's a movement uh, in the 20th century to recreate uh, and restore uh, Polynesian travel across the ocean uh, because it hadn't been done in a while. So people were beginning to build, you know, in Hawaii, there was a, they built the canoe, the double-hulled canoe, to try to replicate travel and they enlisted one of the navigators, I think, was he a Tongan, if I remember yeah, that right? Yeah, he's a Micronesian. He's Micronesian. From, yeah, he's from Sarawal. His name is Maupiai Luke, yeah. Right, and so, and he, and the way you describe his understanding, I thought was just beautiful. Um, you know, the kind of taking into account so many factors in order to navigate. And this effort proved that these, and because this is what the other background that we haven't, I didn't ask you about is all of the people who have tried to figure out different ways that the Polynesians got there, you know, including Thor Heyerdahl, thinking that they must have come from South America and, you know, trying to prove that with the Contiki uh, raft. And then people who thought, no, they couldn't have navigated there. They must have drifted. I mean, all these different theories, but the Polynesians know that they are navigators. And in this 20th century effort, as you recount, they proved it. Um, but it's they have such a complex understanding that is so different from how European uh, people see the world when they think about navigating. I thought that was a really important part of this story. Yeah, the 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 the, the school of navigation that is now 
really taught, and because there are now as a whole school and people are learning how to navigate non-instrumentally. So that just means with your understanding of the natural world and how the canoe behaves and what the sky shows you and what the swells do and all that kind of stuff and land finding techniques and all. There's a whole kind of body of lore and people have learned how to do this. But the when they first started trying to learn this in Hawaii at, during with the Polynesian Voyaging Society, and Nainoa Thompson is, of course, the great, you know, the, the, the first person to have tried to do this, really. Um, he was trying to learn from these Micronesian navigators, from particularly from Maupialuk. You know, it was hard for them um, because they had not been raised in it. And it's like any kind of a skill set. You know, Mao had been doing this from the time that he was a child and he had been doing it all his life. And he was a middle aged man by then. So, you know, he had he, he it was a world view that he had he was used to and he knew it. And so it was hard to learn to do that, to do the same kind of thing. And in some ways, they, they, they didn't really, they learned how to do what he did, but they also incorporated some other ideas of their own. I mean, so it's kind of complicated in terms of how that in knowledge was transmitted to, you know, from, to the Hawaiians. But, but it definitely involved a kind of different way of thinking about what you were doing and certainly a different reliance on a different on different bodies of knowledge that was really the other thing you know really knowing understanding what the birds do really understanding what the sky does really understanding how the ocean behaves and the winds and stuff like that and that was kind of new to some people to everybody really so I think one wouldn't, one wouldn't want to wouldn't downplay how much a sailor knows about those things because I think a lot of this stuff makes a lot of sense to people who sail. You know, they go, oh, yeah, of course you do, do that or of course, you know. But but there was also, you know, when you have no instruments at all, you have no compass, no sextant, no charts, no nothing. It's pretty different. Yeah, no, it seemed very different. Now, one question I wanted to ask because I wasn't sure I understood this about the canoes. Um, do they operate by sail and or, or just by sail? It's sail. They can't row it, but they have a steering oar. There's a steering oar at the back of the canoe, but they Got don't it. row it. So it's, it's not, high up not the water. Right, so it's a sailboat. Right. Not like Viking boats, which were both No, it's not sail. like that. No, right. no. It's like a, ca- it's a catamaran. With, with, it's basically a catamaran if you, you know, sail, sailing boat. If yep. you, you know, yeah. So do you, do you feel, have you thought about um, this notion of, um, or, or thought about the the comparative between this body of knowledge, uh, unique to Polynesians, I would say, and this worldview. It, do you think it's similar to what you see in South America with um, uh, uh, tribal knowledge of plants? Plant. Maybe? <laughs> I'm thinking thinking mostly of plants, but it's also of animals. It's of the the, the of the natural world because particularly with plants, there's a body, a secret body of knowledge, but also true with animals that there are spirits that are visible to uh, a person who is accustomed to putting themselves in a state of being that allows them to apprehend other, uh, potentially other levels of knowledge, let's say. Um, And I mean, do you think there's a similarity there between this, the way that the um, Polynesians sailed uh, a kind of, you know, is spirituality part of the um, the that worldview in the same way that it is? Yeah, well, I certainly think that spirituality is part of it in the sense that um, the, the knowledge that, I mean, I don't think it's, 
<clears throat> see how to put this. Uh, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's romantic. Okay, so I wouldn't call it, think of it you know spirituality in a sort of romantic sense, but I would certainly say that the understanding and and one can only speculate really about what it was ages and ages and ages ago, but it sort of seems like uh, it was part uh, your knowledge one's knowledge of the ocean and the geography and the ways that you would maybe move about in the world as a navigator was part and parcel of your understanding of how the world operated and that in itself was different from the way we see things and it was partly different in that it was um the relationship of humans to animals and to the to the sort of physical world was different it was more integrated it was closer it wasn't as though you were this separate thing it was that you were part of this continuum of 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 being um that's clearly different from the way we see I mean, we may have some there may be religious frameworks in which one sees oneself that way you know you think of the transcendentalists for example you know we're part of nature and nature's part of us and all that but but they definitely had a um a sense of the world having a supernatural dimension which was you know perceptible and was important and was active in the universe so that if Chapaya, for example who was a navigator wanted to go from one island to another he would go out to the front of the ship and he would call upon deities to give him the wind that he wanted and i don't think that he was just performing that you know for somebody's benefit that was what he was doing it was part of what he would do so that whole understanding of how the world functioned and 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 what the supernatural dimensions of the world were that's something that is different from i think it's different from the way people feel now even in that those in the islands mostly but it's also different from the way the Europeans who encountered those people felt about the wind. They did not think that the wind was delivered to them by a supernatural being. Right. So is in Polynesia today, I mean, because I think this is part of what you talked about as well. Sim, I, I kind of draw some similarities to um, indigenous people in other parts of the world who um, experience similar um uh, contact issues, you know, that you, you, um, and I hadn't thought about this, but the, you know, the same thing happened in Polynesia that happened in North America with after ca- contact, there was population collapse because of exposure to diseases that people had no natural immunities to. Uh, I, I, that had not occurred to me that that had happened in Polynesia, but clearly as it did, um, but but so there's a lot of uh, things that are lost when cultures are under pressure. Um, but today there's a, an effort in some places to revive some of those cultural practices, to revive the languages that have been, you know, that are, are threatened with extinction. Does Is that happening in Polynesia, the same sort of thing? Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the language um, revival, the language revival is important in places like um, particularly in, uh, Hawaii and New Zealand, where the you know where colonization has had really has been you know where the ratio of of islanders to non islanders is you know small. Um, some of the other islands there, the languages are not so threatened, um, but the language in Hawaii and New Zealand has been has been under pressure, serious pressure. And in both of those places, there have been really powerful and effective efforts to bring the language back. And so that's one thing that's going on. But of course, going with that goes a lot of other stuff sort of to bring back, to really reinvigorate certain cultural understandings and certain ways of thinking about things. I know that my my husband's brothers and sisters who are in New Zealand have have spent quite a lot of time kind of thinking, some of them, thinking about these 
cultural frameworks and how they can be applied in the modern world to their particular sort of modern lives and um, trying not to lose some of that stuff, you know, or trying to recover it, I guess, is even more more the right. case. And so it's, yeah, it's yeah, totally going on. Yeah, and complicated because you're trying to integrate a way of, you know, two different ways of seeing the world in some ways. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and some of those, some things are kind of applicable and work and some things probably don't. And so, you know, but I mean, this is, of course, the... I mean, we we think of this as a kind of cultural recovery, but really it's it's sort of cultures morphing the way cultures right. do. Yep. No, that's true. And yeah. right, I think we there you had alluded to the romanticization. I think there is a certain element of romanticizing. You know, going back to Rousseau, uh, you know, re- romanticizing the quote natural as if there was such a thing. You know, uh, natural being you know, pre-civilization, unnatural being, but we're, it's all natural. It's all part of a continuum of human beings, but there is definitely a difference between different views. Well, that's that's really true. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I didn't do this very overtly, but one of the things that is, has kind of been important to me was, you know, one way of framing this whole idea of Polynesian is I sometimes think that I was originally thinking about Europeans when I first started writing about the Pacific. I was thinking about Europeans or, or outsiders coming to the Pacific for the first time and what that happened. And they would then, with, in, the, in that situation, they encountered these islanders who were already there. And then, as you mentioned, the islanders themselves, they came to the Pacific from someplace else. And they didn't find other people there because there weren't any other people, but they themselves were sort of colonizers in that sense, you know? And sometimes what I like to, I try to think about this whole thing as this kind of human his instead of, you know, us and them, in the colonial framework, trying to get outside that a little bit and think about this kind of long human continuum where people move and they're kind of, they're kind of, I mean, one thing they do is they kind of eat everything. Yeah. I was going to, right. When, you talked yeah. about the moas, the birds. It's yeah. like, oh my God, you know, we forget how voracious human beings are. They really are. And on islands, island habitats and island ecosystems are really pretty fragile. And so, you know, the impact of island of people on islands is pretty, pretty remarkable. They eat a lot of stuff and they, things like, you know, the size of the shellfish changes fairly quickly because people eat the big ones, you know, and all kinds of things happen. Um, and the impact of humans on environments is something that I think probably worth thinking about. It's not, it's not cultural. I mean, the impact of Europeans on the islands was worse because there were more of them and because maybe because their attitude, they had a worse attitude about it. I don't know about that. I think they did actually, they had less of a caretaking attitude and more of a, more of a, you know, exploitation. Right. Attitude. It was extraction. Still, ver, extract. I always look exactly. at it as extraction Extractions, versus right. use. Yeah. You, and, and that's yeah, not, that's right. it, it's, it is also, but you are so right. It's about scale. Uh, it's both about how you live, but also how many of you live in a particular place. Right. It's possible for, you know, we see this in North America where you have collapsing civilizations in the early, like in the 1400s, all over North America because the, um, maybe because of a natural climate cycle, but also because they could not support the number of, they, they had a successful culture and more people uh, uh, came about because of that. And then they overload the the natural carrying capacity of where they were. Right, right. And you can do that with comparatively small populations if the environment is very fragile. It doesn't take too much, it doesn't take too many people to do. I mean, this is kind of what the big debate about, you know, one of the debates about Easter Island has been about, is that how did that, 
how, how did, was that what happened? You know, that was the Jared Diamond thesis is right. in collapses that they just were, could, the island couldn't sustain them. There's an argument about whether that's true or not, whether that's what happened. But, but it's still an interesting question in an island environment. Because there's not many more than what there is there, <laughs> and and that kind of goes to one of the themes of the the book, which was trying to figure out how why did Polynesians keep on going across such vast distances. And one theory, of course, is that you know they would go because they you know you might have population pressure where you were. I think you debunked that to some extent. Yeah, it's really not considered to be the answer. One of the reasons for that's not considered the answer is that when, as they move from um, say the islands on the north of Papua New Guinea out towards the wider Pacific. They go through from the Solomon Islands, they go out to Santa Cruz and then to Vanuatu and New Caledonia and then out to Samoa, Tonga, Fiji. You know, that's kind of the pathway. But the islands of, say, New Caledonia and the island of Fiji, the islands of, you know, in Samoa, they're all pretty big. And comparatively speaking, I mean, they're not really big, but they're big for islands in that part of the world. And it, the, the speed with which they move through this region, is it's too fast for them to have actually used up what was in those islands. So they moved on. This, it, it, they, it wasn't clearly just sort of population pressure and resource, um, resource uh, a need for, for more resources. So it's kind of tricky to figure out the answer to that question. Yeah, which well, but that makes it interesting and worthwhile uh, exploring. You know, if it was easy to figure out, then there there wouldn't be anything right. to talk about. Wouldn't be a book, <laughs> right? That's right. <laughs> but it's but it also I thought another thing that was really interesting is how theories arise, you know, maybe expressed by the worldview of the person who has the theory, uh, trying to apply it on on the um, on the thing that they're studying rather than really understand it, you know, trying to extract knowledge from the, what they're seeing. Um, and I think more, we've evolved from that to some extent, but it's also very possible that we will never fully understand history. I think you talk about that too, because it is so complicated, it is tricky. Um, I think it's a frustration for anybody who is trying to understand history beyond, first of all, we know even in recent history, how complicated people's memories are. Um, so, uh, you know, they, we have unreliable narrators at every turn. Um, even the physical evidence is confusing, and we're doing deductive reasoning rather than ever really being able to know exactly what happened. Well, I think one of the for me, and I think um, this was picked up by one of my by some of my expert readers, Patrick Kirch, who's a really great archaeologist um, in the Pacific, sort of the, the you know the real granddaddy of the of the field at this point. Um, and he, he sort of, what he thought about the book was that it was a sort of an object lesson in fear, in, in, you know, be care, being careful about theorizing because there's so many wrong theories along the way. And at the time, it's really impossible for people to see that they're wrong. You know, I mean, this is of course true in science and everywhere that, you know, people have an idea and then they really run with it. And then later on people go, whoops, you missed this other thing that makes that completely implausible. But the, it's, it was fun for me to work through some of the um, bad ideas or wrong ideas um, that were firmly held. People were committed to them for long periods of time. And uh, it was interesting to see that because, of course, you know, it, it's, must, it's currently true as well. Like something that we're committed to is not right. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Right. <laughs> No, I'm sure that's true. We we just can't see it. Um, we just can't see it. Now, yeah. and I think just, I want to ask you one more question because 
there's so many other things we could talk about, but this one kind of is not part of the book's story, but it's one that I think about, and that is, um, and because you've spent a lot of time in this region, maybe you can explain to me, um, what is the current thinking about climate change and its effect on the people who live in this watery environment where when if there is going to, and which we know will happen, sea, sea levels will rise, the Pacific Islanders, people who live there, are going to be affected in a really big way. What are they thinking about that now? Well, there are there are movements. Uh, there are movements already. There are people who are who live in atoll nations, nations just made of flat coral rings, and they are in trouble. Um, it's not just that they will be, you know, that the, that their islands disappear. It's that their water sources become contaminated. They get over their islands get overwashed by you know more frequently. That also that with warming seas, the um, energy in the Pacific you know, over the ocean, the whole kind of energy of the system will go up and there will be more big storms. I think people are already seeing that. There were some really big ones in the Pacific last year and the year before, and that's going to be bad because one of the things about the mid-Pacific is that it is sort of traditionally kind of, it's not storm-free, but it's a comparatively low incidence of really bad storms in the middle. The most of the really big storms are in the West. Um, So that's going to be bad for them. Uh, lots of islands are going to become uninhabitable. I mean, that's totally right. And there are some communities that are trying to purchase, you know, safe haven land in larger islands where there's more land and and they're higher. Um, I mean, I think it's just really dire. It's really bad. It's it's going to be bad for them. I think so. Is there a sense of, it? does the communalism, is there a communalistic response that, say, the larger islands where people no you they're not they're not necessarily even speaking the same language but they are similar cultures as you ta- we talked about earlier so is it possible that refugees from s- some of these most at risk uh places end up going to you know being invited to other places where yeah uh, you yeah know. i i do think there i think think that is but the other thing that's that's sort of complicated about the pacific in the post colonial period is that you definitely have a bunch of different sort of, there are a lot of sort of subcultures and, and people while being, you know, understanding themselves as one, one big group, they're also divided by nation. Right. I mean, they're divided not only by nation, but by nation, but by island, by family, by, you know, <laughs> by tribe in some country, in some places. I mean, there's a lot of division as well. So it, it's, it's definitely going to be one of those things people have to kind of work out. I mean, New Zealand has been, New Zealand, I think, will be a haven for quite a lot of people. There are a lot of Samoans and Tongans already in New Zealand. So, so for the Western Pacific, that's a place that I imagine people will go. I, I mean, I don't really know. I'm just guessing. Um, you know, I know that some people have been interested in land in Fiji. I, you know, I don't know. But there are parts of the Pacific are sort of divided into, you know, there's all of French Polynesia where people speak French. And then yeah. there's, a, you know, Easter Island belongs to, to Chile. And uh, then some parts of the Pacific are kind of English. You know, yeah. some independence. Yeah, no, so, I, I think it's something sort of that complicated. Yeah, and and I think it's important. You know, that's something that I think a lot of Americans we're just we don't really know very much about the Pacific, um, except for you know the, the sort of historical high points. And so I think it's valuable to read this book and think about <laughs> you know the future of the Polynesia. Yeah, well, it's the one thing that a lot of sometimes. 
I think people don't kind of remember that Hawaii is part of yes our world. <laughs> right. And Hawaii is sort of Hawaii is the link really between us and this world. Um, I was trying to kind of keep that in mind to sort of you know periodically remind people if you've been to Hawaii, you know this will be familiar to you <laughs> because I feel like that's our real that's the real touch point that we have here. Right. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I really loved this book, Christina. So I'm really happy to have had a chance to talk to you about it and recommend it to everyone who is listening. Uh, it's called Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia by Christina Thompson. It's just a terrific book. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking with me. This has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk, your host. 